When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by TasteBud, a new mobile app that lets you share and discover movies, music, books, TV shows, podcasts, and apps. Ask friends for specific recommendations or simply share your current obsessions. Go to tastebudapp.co. That's tastebudapp.co. And by audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash culture. And by Birchbox Man. With all the challenges you tackle each day, looking sharp shouldn't have to be one of them. For $20 a month, Birchbox Man will ship you a lineup of gear and grooming essentials, from style upgrades to shaving supplies, direct to your doorstep. Get 100 Birchbox points, that's a $10 value, with a new subscription when you go to birchbox.com and use the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Spy Unreal Wow edition. It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2015. On today's show, Spy is the new comedy mega hit from the writer-director Paul Feig. It stars Melissa McCarthy. And then Unreal is a TV show, a fictional TV show, a drama and a satire that goes behind the scenes of a Bachelor-style TV show called Everlasting. And finally, we're joined by Slate's own Dan Coyce to talk about his extensive reporting on the Onion spinoff site, Clickhole. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Thank you guys so much for uh, holding down the fort last week. It was fun to listen to the show. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, and uh, and joining me, of course, is uh, Slate's uh, movie critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Before we move forward, we have some business, right? Yeah, we have serious business, guys. It is time. The time has come here in June of 2015 for the return of Summer Strut. And can we get some bass? So Summer Strut, I think our longtime listeners will be familiar with uh, this tradition. It began four, five, three, some years ago when I lamented in early summer that I didn't have good music to walk to work to and that I needed some nice strutty tunes with a nice loping pace to help me strut through the summer city and admire everybody's uh, summer styles and summer mojo. And so we've begun a tradition of every year having a summer strut playlist. I think we've done it all years but one maybe. We will post a post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, saying please submit your summer strut recommendations here. They can be new. They can be the songs of this summer. They can be old They can be American, they can be foreign, they can be obvious, they can be bizarre. Uh, We welcome all comers, and we look forward to hearing them. They can't be autumnal. They cannot be autumnal, nor should they, what are the other words? Vernal. Vernal for spring. (laughs) They must be estival. They must be estival, but not autumnal, vernal, or... Wintress. Wintry? No, come on, there's, like, what's the... Invernal? Invernal? No, wait, I don't know. What's winter in Latin? The er invernal song. Not allowed. All right, anyway. Okay, according to Gyrate 101, it's hibernal. Oh, of course. Also, what the fuck? <laughs> Gyrate 101? That's like the top search result? It's on my Grindr account, okay? <laughs> I always trust people who can gyrate when they're with their descriptions of, uh, of season names. Every morning before his cup of coffee, Steve checks Gyrate 101. <laughs> and, and as affirmed by Need to Know, K-N-E-A-D. <laughs> so that's Summer Strut. Do not forget to submit your best stuff. I'm very excited to get that new playlist cracking. I've been listening exclusively to Taylor Swift for like six months since that album came out, so I really need some new songs in my ear. Steve, I'm not too proud to admit. I also wanted to let our listeners know about our Slate Plus segment today. As we were preparing the show and talking about our response to Spy and how great Rose Byrne is in it, Steve Metcalf said wistfully, Rose Byrne once gently touched my wrist. It was, it was, it was so, oh my God. 
<laughs> okay, so our Slate Plus segment is we will hear about the time that Rose Byrne gently brushed Steve's wrist. Of course, we've all heard Rose Byrne talk about it on talk shows many a time, but <laughs> Steve will revisit it from his point of view. In, in, and finally, in, we'll get his side of the story. In lightly coded language, but yeah. <laughs> all right, we have a show to make. Let's... Uh, let's move on. <laughs> All right. Spy is the new comedy from writer-director Paul Feig. He of Freaks and Geeks and Bridesmaids and other forms of renown. It stars Melissa McCarthy as a CIA support staffer who goes into the field and there goes comically rogue. It co-stars everybody. But if you had to pick out some specific names, you'd come up with Jude Law, Jason Statham, and uh, I especially like Miranda Hart. She the midwiferist. Well, and also Rose Byrne, who we'll get to, who is hilarious in the movie. But I think we have a clip that shows an interchange between Melissa McCarthy. She's just arrived in the field with her unpleasantly dowdy alter ego. She's at this cruddy hotel in Paris setting up for her stakeout, where she is surprised by another super spy played by Jason Statham, who is irritated that he has not been given the assignment that Melissa McCarthy has been given. And of course, she's been given it because nobody knows her. She hasn't been clocked. He's a an ace spy whose cover has been blown in a target. So this is their confrontation. What are you doing in my room? Well, how did I get into this shitbox hotel room? Because I'm a real spy. I thought you quit. We have to stop the sale of a nuclear bomb. And they send in someone who looks like Santa Claus's fucking wife. Uh, did you forget? I am undercover. Because you're not supposed to be here. You really think you're ready for the field? I want to use defibrillators on myself. I'll put shards of glass my fucking eye. I've jumped from a high-rise building using only a raincoat as a parachute and broke both legs upon landing and I still had to pretend I was in a fucking Cirque du Soleil show. I've swallowed enough microchips and shit them back out again to make a computer. This arm has been ripped off completely <laughs> and reattached with this fucking arm. I don't know that that's possible. <laughs> Medically. <laughs> I'm glad we had that clip because that may be my favorite bit of dialogue, that Jason Statham speech in the hotel room. He is so good in that role. He's nothing but whipped cream in this movie, right? It's just delicious. I delicious love a comic Jason Statham. He's got to stop with the action and just do the comedy. He actually barely beats anyone up in this, and he's, he's just, you can't take your eyes off He's him. marvelous. Okay, well, we're all giggling, but let's uh, get down to brass tacks here. Dana, did you like this movie or not? I did. I gave it a very good review. I was thoroughly enjoyed the two hours I spent in it. It really has a lot of laughs, which is a lot to be said for an American comedy. Comedy. I mean, it has that problem of <laughs> so pathetic. I know it's it is it is sad. The state of American comedy that the fact that it makes you laugh consistently is this you know huge mark on its side. I mean, I'll go further than that. Like, I think it's got good characters. I think it's it, it tells a good story. There's one thing I didn't like about this movie, which I wrote about a bit in my review, and we can discuss later, which is that I thought it was a little too violent and mm-hmm. gory for yeah. a for a lightweight comedy. But it's Fegan McCarthy's third collaboration. It's the first time she starred in a movie that he made for her. He wrote the the script as well, which wasn't true with their two previous collaborations. Bridesmaids and, and The Heat, which was this buddy cop comedy he made with her and, and Sandra Bullock. And I kind of feel like, you know, they've hit a mm-hmm. thing that Melissa McCarthy can do well. I can see they're not only being maybe a spinoff to this movie, not that I'm praying for that. I would rather have more original movies with, you know, this kind of story. But it manages to be this female-centric spy comedy without being sort of obnoxiously girl powerish. Mm-hmm. And in fact... Although many of the male characters are buffoons, they're kind of lovable buffoons, and it isn't really... I wouldn't say that it is a movie that, you know, creates the males as villains. In fact, mm-hmm. Forrest Wickman, who I spoiled the movie with, had a, had a great theory that the, the villain of this movie is the patriarchy, that sort of both the men and women are entrapped by these gender roles, and that ultimately it's sort of the system that they're trying to win out against. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Julia, give us your opinion on Load. What do you got? I really enjoyed it, too. I, As Dana reported, I laughed a lot of times, and I think one thing that's unusual usual about a movie when it tries to tackle gender in a surprising way for a spy movie is that there's usually so much fucking back padding. I mean, I think we talked about this when we saw the Pixar movie Brave and it was all about like the struggle to be a girl who's bold. And it feels like when movies are made where women have action star roles, often the fact that they are women is like their prime filter for the world and that's just super irritating and I totally I think, agree I mean I liked Brave a lot better than you but th- that's exactly what I mean about this not being all about like girl with seven hours no, power like, M- Melissa McCarthy's conflict is not that she's a woman there is a CIA boss character played by Allison Janney who does kind of say oh typical you used to be the handler for Jude Law as a spy and he convinced you you'd be uh, best continuing to be his handler you know in a basement somewhere in the states and discouraged your 
dream of going out into the field because you had high marks, but it's not presented as like that sexist asshole. Like he gets some redemption eventually. And it's really presented more as a like personality question. She's extremely competent, but a little bit timid and reserved and conservative in her normal life. And the movie, the prime conflict of it is about her kind of connecting with her inner badass. And then she does so gloriously and the badassery can barely be stemmed. And I just enjoyed watching her in the performance. And I enjoyed that she has a great role. Alison Janney has a great role as her boss. There's a funny female sidekick character played by Miranda Hart, who's a great galoot of an actress and is very comic. And then there's some lady villains, too. There's Marina Baccarin, who plays a CIA hotshot whose fate turns twisty. And then Rose Byrne, who I cannot say enough good things about Rose Byrne. I feel like Rose Byrne should be in every comedy ever. She's hilarious as a Bulgarian villainess who is deadpan, ruthless, entitled, bitchy, extensively coiffured. And, <laughs> and dresses like a slutty mm. dolphin trainer, to quote one of the insults <laughs> Melissa McCarthy hurls at her. The interplay between Rose Byrne and Melissa McCarthy in this movie is just so fun to watch. And it's, you know, it's it robustly passes the Bechdel test, right? They're fighting about nukes and suitcases and outfits and... Uh, Candy Crush. And Candy Crush and and plane flying. and They're almost frenemies. I mean, it's a really interesting villain-heroine relationship yeah. because there's these moments that they sort of recognize each other's, you know, ability to, to play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like some things about the movie enormously, especially the banter between her and Statham and, and, and Byrne. Just absolute the writing highlights and performing highlights of the movies. I think it's brilliantly cast. Everybody is very good in it. It solves a problem, which is how to put Melissa McCarthy at the center of a movie. I mean, I'm not saying it was a huge problem, but it was, this is the most successful use of her talents. And it's at the absolute in center. In a leading role. In a right. leading role. At the, at, the, at the center of a movie, it, do, it did that really brilliantly. It was very put off by the level of violence, which begins right from the beginning. Could have used it a was, lot less It was actually a strange thing to have in the it, movie, it's I thought. It's notable. It's not, and it's notable. It's like you gore, that, right? I noticed that you noticed that A.O. Scott mentions it in his review. I felt it in the movie, and I wasn't sure if it was my own peculiar And Bond movies, which is parodying, are not sort of that violent and gory. I mean, we're really talking about butchery. And I just think that that's just not necessary to the movie in some way. But I will say, Julia, I disagree with you a little bit. I think it's more pointedly feminist than you're giving it credit for, because I thought that was one of the more interesting scenes early on in the movie when Alice and Janney says to her, oh, you, you don't see what this guy Jude Law did to you. You were both equivalents right, coming out of the academy. And then he, quote unquote, sniped you. Right. He used this technique of using his masculine wiles to get you to be support to his stardom, right? And so the movie's all about reversing that, which is a great way of using Melissa McCarthy, who I think in Hollywood traditionally would be, as an overweight woman, would be a cast constantly in comic relief supporting roles. And and that seemed to me pointedly feminist. No, I, I'm not saying it's not feminist. I just enjoyed the breeziness of the feminism, yeah, that that the feminism was a way to create a comedy that was a mechanism for giving Melissa McCarthy a great starring role as opposed to, like, the leaden point and a, and a pointed response to Hollywood critics. Speaking of sexism, did the Aldo character bother you guys at all, played by Peter Serafinowicz? This is the um, perhaps Italian agent who is assigned to follow McCarthy's character in Rome and his essentially constantly groping her. He's just a nonstop sexual harasser who she sort of bats away in this annoyed fashion. And all those scenes kind of made me giggle because he's just a big ham and they're funny together. But I can see how that could offend some people's sensibilities. It's sort of essentially sexual harassment as a laugh getter. Oh, I thought that you meant people might be offended because of its gross stereotype of Italian men. <laughs> maybe maybe Italian men will be picketing this movie. I those scenes offended me only because the level of humor was less funny than the level in the, with the rest of the comic performers. They were tolerably funny, but Italian men are handsy is a much more tired joke than Jude Law is a simpering twit. The like handsy Italian Lothario. It's like, well, you know, it was a fine handsy Italian Lothario and you know, the sexual harassment thing, I mean, whatever. I, like, there were no sacred cows in this movie. That wasn't the problem with it. I just thought it was less funny than the other parts. Hmm. All right. Well, the movie is Spy. It's uh, written and directed by Paul Feig. It stars Melissa McCarthy. Uh, check it out. Tell us what you think of it. We're at facebook.com slash culture All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week is TasteBud, which is a new mobile app. 
Looking for a good beach read to help you relax this summer or a gripping drama to binge watch over a rainy weekend? Just ask your friends on TasteBud and get notified as the recommendations roll in. TasteBud is a new mobile app that lets you exchange recommendations on movies, music, books, TV shows, podcasts, and apps with your friends and other trusted sources. Best of all, you can easily share your TasteBud post to Twitter and Facebook and via text message. And TasteBud posts are fully viewable on the web. So essentially what this app does is uh, enable any of our listeners to have the ability that we have on this show to uh, randomly solicit recommendations from We're a redundant. whole host of talented people. Uh, you no longer need us to corral recommendations for you. You can just get them from all your pals via TasteBud. Get TasteBud now in the App Store or go to tastebudapp.co. That's tastebudapp.co. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Unreal is a new TV series on Lifetime that goes behind the scenes of a Bachelor-like reality show called Everlasting. I should say Unreal is itself fictional. Everlasting is also fiction, and the point of its rapier satire is that so too is the Bachelor monumentally staged pseudo-reality whose ultimate prize is not marriage but footage, mostly of contestants being humiliated. Let's listen to a clip. Before we listen, let me set it up quickly. This clip features... Rachel Goldberg, who is, I think, our prime heroine. She is a longtime producer on Everlasting who walked away last season and has been lured back by her boss under circumstances that become clear over the course of the pilot. And she returns to set to find that The Bachelor has walked. The man who's going to be the center of the show and who must pick from a bevy of beauties is threatening to pull out. And so her job is to find him, corral him, and get him to sign on the dotted line. So we hear her wiles in action here. So cut the crap. What's it going to take for you to sign the contract straight up? Well, um, I'd have to think about it. Okay. It's not going to work. Uh, we have a backup guy. Is a backup guy? Yeah, some, uh... Doctors Without Borders guy who found a cure for malaria or something. Oh, wow. Malaria, that's that's one of my causes. I would I would love to meet him. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, he'll uh, be in makeup in about 10 minutes. Cheers. All right, Julia, well, there's very much that's promising here. It's one of those premises where you, as soon as you hear it, you wonder why it hasn't been done already. A good sign for the show. What do you think of it? I'm so excited about this show. It's super fun. I actually, that point you make about the premise is really interesting. So my husband was a journalist for years and he's moved into working in television development five or six years ago. And, you know, one of the things that I was constantly asking him when he started is like, why hasn't anybody ever done a great show that's a fictional series behind the scenes at one of these reality shows. It seems so crazy, truth and fiction. And we were talking to some folks in the industry, and one person said that actually everybody has this idea all the time, but that the trick is that it's too fucking dark, that people always want to do behind the scenes in porn and behind the scenes in reality TV for the same reasons. You've got business, you've got sex, you've got image and reality, all great themes to work with over a series run, but that those two industries are just too fucking bleak and dark, and that no matter how dark your satire is, you need some plucky heart at the core of it for readers to attach to, and there's just no soul in these shows. So I was watching this with very much that light in mind, and I think in some ways this show both proves that point, that it goes really fucking dark. I mean, I'm not sure when the last time is that you guys watch something on Lifetime besides reruns of Cheers, but my association with Lifetime is not black, like charred soul, withered, encrusted death of humanity observation about the world. But this is pretty fucking black. And yet I really liked it. And it is satisfying my desire for there to have been the show for for many, many years. And, and Dana, I'm not mistaken. They haven't yet thrown a sop to the audience. That's the plucky, you know, red, redemption at the center of the story yet. Right. It's it's unremitting. Yeah, I guess so, except that they did cast a heroine who has some sort of warmth that seems to transcend, you know, the horribleness of her job. I mean, essentially, this is a a show about somebody who's morally conflicted about what they do for a living, right? It's, It's a show about a woman who had some sort of breakdown because of the job that we see her doing before our eyes. So, you know, part of it is a question, you know, she headed toward another breakdown. But we also know that there's some part of her, there's some shred of her soul that has not been captured Mm -hmm. by the emptiness of this job. Right. The first time we see her, if I recall, she's the host. This is Rachel. Uh, Played by Sherry Appleby, we should say, who I think is is really great and stands out from a really good cast. She's terrific in it, and it's and her character is set up beautifully. So she's been rehired for the show. The first shot of her, I believe, she's lying on the floor of a limousine that's stretch limo that's carrying to the set four or so of these, you know, interchangeable. I'm trying hard not to use a sexist word, you know, women. 
Um, you know, I want to know where you were going to go. I mean, you have to sort of go with bimbo, but I mean, that's part of the satire. So. <laughs> well, but they get less interchangeable. I as agree. The show goes no, on. I agree. But they, but at that at this point in the drama, they are basically beauty pageant contestants. Bimbets and gowns. You know, yep. yeah, exactly. They're poodles. They're high strung poodles, and they 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 all have to pee. They're all anxious to see the prince charming. And the last shot of that scene is her still lying down, across, sort of across their feet in the limo, and then the camera pulls out through the moonroof. Or sunroof or whatever the fuck it is, sunroof, right? Three, it's two, dusk, so it's it's uh, <laughs> it's the dusk roof. And you just see her lying there, kind of imprisoned in this limo, and her T-shirt reads, "This is what a feminist looks like." And you think, <laughs> "You got me. I'm hooked. Like I'm in." So Dana, we uh, Julia and I apparently like the show enough to stick with it pretty much indefinitely at this point. What about you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. I mean, it's got it's got whether or not this is a realistic view of what happens behind the scenes of a reality show, which actually one of the co-creators, the female co-creators of this show, has experience producing a reality show. I'm sure that she also would say I'm condensing and fictionalizing and dramatizing a lot to make this the hooky drama that it is. But uh, but to me, it answers this question that comes up every time we talk about reality on our show, which is sort of what's the appeal of it to audiences? What's the appeal of it to the people who choose to be on the shows? You know, what is the reality that's being formed behind the scenes? There's something about that whole world that is so right obviously that it's just a, a glossy front that we can't see behind so mm-hmm. the idea that you're getting that glimpse behind the scenes is great I think there are some storylines that don't work at all I really don't believe in the romance between Constance Zimmer who plays this very very bitchy executive producer of the show who's constantly running around with an earpiece screaming now 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 really good character but she is having this romance, adulterous romance with Craig Birko, who's another of the producers, I guess. And that to me was just a totally dead in the water story. Though I have one thing I liked about it, which is they got at the fact that I think he owns the franchise and therefore is worth, you know, $100 million and she has no equity stake in it and is kind of powerless vis-a-vis him. So this is sort of puts her, you know, Martinette qualities in perspective relative to the rest of the staff who she you know really rides kind of pitiless herd on I mean I thought that that was like pretty nicely drawn I thought um, yeah I mean I think it is interesting to encounter a show like this that could operate at a bunch of different depth levels on Lifetime rather than on you know one of the super premium networks or one of the new anything goes streaming services in addition to watching this show on Lifetime I was seeing all the ads for the other Lifetime offerings including Devious Maids and you know a, a bunch of the other shit like there's a clear network pressure for lurid, hooky sauciness. Like this show is as jam-packed with kind of energy and attention and plot as uh, they try to get each episode of The Bachelor or Bachelorette to be, not always successfully because the structure of those shows is that they're forever showing you the same you know, money shot of the girl crying like three times, like in the preview before the commercial and the preview before the next commercial. And they show it to you, then they show it to you again. You know, like, so this feels much more jam-packed pace-wise than an actual reality show does. But that might just be pilot ease. I, I watched about half of the second episode and it it does start to unspool itself in a little bit more of a... Um, a natural way. Mm-hmm. I'm just pretty psyched about it. Yeah, me it. too. I, even when it seems exploitative, it seems smart, which is kind of a great combination. Can I ask, Steve, you're the resident Bachelorette fan. Ba- I, bachelor fan. Oh, only the Bachelor? Sorry. No, 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 actually both. Uh, all right i'm just i'm searching around for the shred of dignity and not finding it so proceed so it's that you prefer to watch women prostrate before a male suitor (laughs) than men prostrate before a female i'm glad i'm glad where we've got that dignity shard (laughs) illuminated and actually it's kind of jammed in my eye socket right now but go ahead anyway so you watch these shows I, i am a hundred percent certain you were never blinkered about your understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. But what is it like to watch this fictionalized version of this show, having had a viewer relationship with, like, the show itself? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, first of all, you know, my wife was a, a lawyer for reality TV for a long time, and so there were seriously no illusions about what had happened behind the scenes in order to create what was on our TV. Nonetheless. Watching the show coincided completely with having kids, right? This transition from somewhat idealized romance, paradigm of somewhat idealized romance in your life to no romance at all for at least a few years. I'm just years. picturing that you and Kothi in the early years sort of 360-degree camera, single rose. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a rose ceremony, actually. So the women of Yale Law School. Anyway, um, but it was... Um, Anyway, so... Um, Steve has that calendar up, the women of <laughs> Yale Law School. <laughs> uh, 
so uh, anyway, we, you know, the two of us sort of lying there, probably at that point still on some kind of a futon couch, absolutely slammed to within an inch of our lives from having kids. I think we just we needed something that taxed us mentally not at all and something that maybe even made an old, you know, a, a, a prior paradigm of, you know, romantic attachment seem chintzy and absurd so we could feel good about entering <laughs> our maturity, <laughs> our full-on romantic maturity. And it was just good bread and circus, man. I mean, it, I, you know, the other thing that I thought was sort of interesting about it is that, you know, here comes the postmodern bromide. All of life is a social contrivance, right? You know, we self-stage and exist within pre-snapped together habit trails. And it's not clear to me that a reality TV show doesn't produce moments that are genuinely emotional and real to the people who are in the midst of them, even though they're wholly contrived. And I think it was always interesting to watch it wondering how element X and element Y might produce emotional epiphany Z. And 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 it was just entertaining. And then as my kids got older and normal life returned, we stopped watching. I mean, that really is exactly what happened when I think about it. And so watching the fictional show does the mechanisms that it posits for how exactly they achieve those moments of, of like emotional truth in the midst of all the tool and the giveaway diamond bracelets and the pony carriages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, do, the, do you the, find it sort of a satisfying? Oh, terrifically exploration of that mechanism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of hit me at the exact right moment too, with like my oldest daughter becoming basically a tween teen, and um, now I'm ready to for the dark meta, you know, second level satire of the phenomenon that I was previously consuming recently. <laughs> but that said. Um, you know, it's basically The Bachelor is essentially a beauty pageant in which there's a one person jury and he gets to sleep with his two favorite contestants at the end in order to pick the winner. Right. That's what it is. It's not actually an attempt to bring a man and a woman together for life. Uh, and, and it's you know, wait, I'm just carving that into stone with my chisel. <laughs> um, and it's also this. You know, it, there are many things that are that are irredeemably horrible about it. Right. It's throwing together exceedingly needy, neurotic women who are doubly so because on the one hand they're desperate about being single and on the other they're desperate to get on TV and become pseudo famous and that that once you start to come out of your sullen post childbearing funk really starts to hit you in the face and then it becomes hard to watch but you know, one criticism I would make, and maybe this is just wishing a different show existed than is in front of us, and there's there's so much that's good in this show, but it's it's a very straight show for a show that is purportedly sending up The Bachelor, you know, the sort of greatest lionization of normative heterosexuality on television. When I first saw this main character, played by Sherry Appleby, who sort of dresses like a scruffy little gammon and, you know, walks around in her army pants looking gloomy, I was really hoping that she was a lesbian and that maybe the angle of why she'd been kicked off the show would have something to do with her having had an affair with Constance Zimmer or one of the other women working on on the show and that there would be some sort of, you know, subterranean gay relationship behind the scenes of this big, glossy, heterosexual show. That hasn't turned out to be true. There is one character working on the show who appears to be a gay man, but maybe his story will emerge more later. That was just something that seemed like it might have enriched the ensemble. Yeah, I couldn't tell yet whether the fact that the pilot was so focused on plot, it was very heavy on plot setup and a little bit lighter on social critique, although there's plenty of it in that they get far enough to show us that our hero is like morally conflicted to the point of mental illness about what she's doing with her life. You know, the show does start to talk about the way race plays out on these shows, the way that black women, you know, barely make it to the final rounds ever. And uh, are urged to be sort of loudmouthed villains, right? Yeah. And there's, you know, there's sort of a real talk moment between a producer and two of the black contestants saying, this is this is how you are a successful black contestant on one of these shows. Think of the other black women who've been successful on these shows. Like, they are mouthy and bitchy. So if you want to go for that. That's That'll play in your favor. So I think we start to see some of the critique around race, and I expect that we may see more around sexual orientation. The show seems smart enough and capacious enough to have room for it, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. I agree. It gives all evidence of it. Okay, the show's called Unreal. It's surprisingly on Lifetime. Good on them. And uh, watch it. Let us know what you think. We're three very enthusiastic thumbs up. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Dana, what do you got? We are happy this week to be sponsored by our old friends Audible.com, who have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products for your enjoyment. Actually, I I feel like that's gone up since the last time we had them as a sponsor. I was going to say, I remember it being 150, and I remember years ago when we first started the show and they sponsored us every week, it was 100,000. So they're steadily adding to their collection. And and who do they have to thank? (laughs) (laughs) Hello? 
<laughs> without us, their business model would be just withering away. <laughs> so you got to go listen to 30,000 new titles, basically. <laughs> Get cracking, folks. So Audible is offering to Culture Fest listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. You can download your choices and access them on your iPhone, your Android device, your Kindle, or any mobile device. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash culture, and you can choose from over 180,000 titles, including, Julia, you've got a recommendation. All right, so I spotted an irresistible title on Audible to recommend to you guys this week, and it has a it has a news peg. It has what we call a news peg in the biz. This title is Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. You may laugh. Jurassic Park was a hit movie in the early 90s, uh, and it returns to theaters, I think, this coming weekend. We may talk about it here on the show. It is the story of science gone wrong, a hubristic quest to revive dinosaurs by cloning their uh you know, trapped in amber DNA material on a remote island in South America and the havoc that ensues. But my philosophy of listening to audiobooks is that it is great when they are absolute plot-driven barn burners. And my recollection of reading this book is that it is great. It is probably not fashionable to say that you enjoy the writing of Michael Crichton. But this was a joyful reading experience for me as a youth. I forget whether I read it before or after I saw the movie. I completely agree. You know, Michael, I haven't read that book, but I've read some Crichton books. And uh, and he comes from that era, which we're not in anymore, when writers of popular best-selling fiction could actually write well, like Peter Benchley and Michael Crichton, people who wrote these blockbustery books that blockbustery movies were mm-hmm. based on. A lot of them are sort of barn burnery, page turnery creations. Oh, right. Stephen and King. I, I feel like we now have some of the, the titles that have risen to the top of the charts since then have the the plot mechanisms, but they don't have like tolerable sentences. Like the the, I feel as though the people who market and make those books have realized that the plot is so powerful that sentence quality is only an ancillary factor and only needs to be controlled for to a slight degree. But Crichton comes from an earlier, heartier, sturdier day of of uh, thriller bestsellers. He's also a doctor, right? So he really, I think he brings the, he must bring the science when it comes to like fake dinosaur genetic engineering. I mean, I'm not going to go there, <laughs> Dana. <laughs> <laughs> Enough to make it credible. That's what I'm saying. It is it is credible. In any event, go to audiblepodcast.com slash culture, get your free book, and think about signing up for Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton in homage to a glorious bestseller era of yore. All right, moving on. Well, Dan Coyce is, of course, Slate's culture editor and a prized guest on this show. He wanted to know, how does the site... Clickhole, with its small staff of young writers and editors tucked around a few tables at the Onion Chicago offices, generates so many stories that make him laugh really hard. So he writes in his wonderful and wonderfully reported piece about the site Clickhole. He goes on to ask, and why do so many of these stories also make me feel bad? And what does it mean to make a website that does both of these things that makes extremely viral media while ruthlessly satirizing the world of viral media? Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, guys. All right, Dan, well, as you know, we've talked about ClickHole before, but this piece is, uh, is so terrific, we felt like we had to go back in. But uh, before we start, give us a little background on what ClickHole is exactly. ClickHole was launched almost exactly a year ago now uh, as a spinoff of The Onion, a web-only spinoff of The Onion. It was originally pitched basically as a BuzzFeed parody. It has expanded since then to become a little bit weirder um, and to also parody other forms of web-native journalism like oral histories and, you know, upworthy-style shareables and things like that. But at its heart, it is a satire of of the social web, of web-based journalism and quasi-journalism as it exists in your Facebook feed. So I guess, Dan, I mean, I would just ask you the process question of, you know, this is a very um, uh, journalist-on-journalism kind of story. At the same time, I think it is interesting for people outside of, of our field to read because it tells you so much about the way journalism works now that you wouldn't know if you weren't somebody behind the scenes um, and and about the quantification of data and how Click has sort of mastered that form of virality. But I just wanted to know if there was a tipping point that drove you to doing this piece, if there was one particular ClickHole story or story about ClickHole, sort of what was your initial inspiration? And uh, and then later I want to ask you about what it was like to be a slate person, not undercover, but, you know, sort of stealthily sitting around at a, at a different magazine's meeting. I had a couple of tipping points and sort of feeling that ClickHole was the signature website of our age, which is the argument I ended up making in this piece. One was just about a week after they launched, they posted this truly insane video called uh, like 80s kids you've got to watch this Calvin and Hobbes video and it was a 20 second video of Calvin and Hobbes having explicit sex (laughs) 
that then ended, we love you, Bill Watterson. Oh um, everything about it was like truly amazing. Like it was weirdly beautifully produced. Also, it was horrible. And on top of everything else, when you went to the web page, their video player was on autoplay, so you couldn't even like you had no out. As soon as you went to the page, immediately Calvin and the Hobbes started fucking. And uh, like the total audacity of a website that would do something like this, even though they could be 100% sure that they would get a takedown notice almost instantly and might possibly be sued, suggested to me that this was a website that could, like, do anything, that might do anything, that I would never be able to sort of settle into, a like, a cozy understanding of what this website was or what they would do. There was always a chance that they would do something so balls-out crazy that it would shock me. And, in fact, in many ways... They have over the course of their basically now year in existence, where where this week is their one-year anniversary. And so there have been other pieces that have given me sort of that same jaw-dropping, like, I can't believe that this website is doing this thing uh, feeling, but that was the first. You know, I haven't kept up with the site, but I'm very curious, Dan, how they made this transition from parodying what turned out to be uh, over its lifetime a dying institution, the American newspaper, to being this new thing. Was it the same set of people, a different set of people? How how did they achieve this evolutionary suppleness? About three years ago, The Onion started trying to do sort of web-only stuff. I mean, I, the site is, of course, very popular on the web. And in fact, in many cities, in most cities, where The Onion once published print newspapers and no longer does. But you know, they started trying to do web-native type things. One of the first things I remember them doing was right around Oscar time a couple of years ago, and it was, the headline was, this, see the nine amazing dresses from the Oscar red carpet. And then when you clicked on it, uh, it was just pictures of war atrocities from Syria. And, uh, God, and like, so it was horrible. funny, and it made a very ham-handed but useful point. But it didn't really actually satirize in in a very, in a very onion-esque way the actual language of those slideshows, those fashion slideshows that perpetuate all over the web. And around that time, people inside the onion just really started to feel as though the newspaper, the magazine, the website was not set up to deal with the kinds of stuff that actually most of them were spending their time reading on the web, the quizzes and the slideshows and the listicles and the shareables. And so a group of editors, including Ben Berkeley, who's the managing editor of The Onion, and um, Jermaine Afonso, who was, uh, who was at the time a senior editor at The Onion, pitched this idea for a, a web-only product, a social web parody. And last year, at the beginning of last year, they pulled the trigger and made the call to start it. They hired up, mostly hiring other writers from The Onion who were interested in this project or freelancers who'd worked with The Onion before, um, as well as hiring two guys who I think ended up very sort of uh, central to the message of it, who were Daniel Kibblesmith and Colin Crawford, who were both at Groupon. They both were writing the um, sort of like funny content at Groupon. And Daniel and Colin sort of, I think, really helped to define the institutional voice of Clickhole along with Jermaine Afonso, the editor. Daniel Kibblesmith got hired by BuzzFeed last December um, to write basically Clickhole articles for BuzzFeed. Um, Colin Crawford is still there and is, is in fact, uh, plentifully quoted in my piece as he is an extremely funny dude. But they launched it last June with a sort of a full suite of stories, and they found immediately that this was like a new way to work in this voice. And almost immediately, I mean, within a month, the site already was doing things that were not clearly targeted at BuzzFeed, but were just sort of weird riffs on the the voice of the internet all on their own. One other thing I want to talk about with you briefly, Dan, is just because Clicole's mastery of the voice of the internet is so terrific, writing headlines for this piece was really hard. It was my job to write headlines yep. for this piece, and I like kept thinking, God, I, I just need five minutes free to write headlines for this piece, and then I would start thinking about it, and everything either sounded too dated or too clearly conniving to get people to click on the piece using the exact mechanisms that the piece actually mocks. So, you know, secrets of the Clickhole writer room revealed sounded too schlocky. And, and in the end, I couldn't do it. Like, finally, you and I had like an IM conversation, and I actually went back and looked at the timestamps. It took us 55 minutes to write the headlines for the piece because... And the, we, headline, and the headline is two words. <laughs> 
the headline is wow, wow. period click hole. <laughs> but we you know we went through a couple different versions like I initially proposed click hole FTW and then the deck is something like how the onion site that set out to mock the internet became the best thing on it and those two lines spoke to each other in a nice way but Dan pointed out and he was totally right that FTW is like internet 2011 and so to use yeah. something that felt that backwards on a piece about a site that is so relentlessly 2015, 2016, 2017 just didn't work. So actually the kind of narr- narrative leap between wow, click hole, and that same deck or subheadline that we wrote is slightly less good than for the original line, but it had to be wow, period, click hole, because wow, period, noun, period, is current internet vernacular in a way that FTW is not. Dan also really liked feel all the feels. Like reporting on click hole made Dan Quoist feel all the feels, and we finally figured out how to use that in the Twitter line. But it, we were trying to jam it into the headline at first, and we couldn't. But it was, it was a formidable headlining task. One fun thing about that headlining task was it gave us a million Twitter lines and Facebook lines to use. Click hole, I didn't get into this a lot in the piece, but click hole social media team is really, really good, and they work almost totally independently of the click hole editorial staff. And they have a lot of authority to just sort of launch crazy quixotic projects of their own. Like they at one point tried to engineer a feud between Clickhole and Anna Kendrick based on a bunch of faked Anna Kendrick tweets. And, you know, they're just like constantly throwing things up there that really feel even more like the internet than Clickhole does, you know? They post Clickhole stories constantly, almost every day, with just the word wow as like the only text that they posted up there with, no matter what the story is. And in fact, as Julia pointed out at one point during an editorial process, every, you know, many web stories have these things called topic tags, which help you, you know, if something is about books or if something is about the internet or if something is about women's issues, they will have a topic tag associated with it that you can click on. And then you see all the stories on the site associated with books or the internet or women's issues. It turns out every story that Clickhole has ever published is topic tagged wow. That's one of the topic tags on it. So if you click the wow topic tag on Clickhole, you get every story they've ever published. So we now have a wow topic tag on Slate, which contains only my Clickhole piece. We're going to have to start adding more things, more wows to your piece. Maybe we'll put it more on this, wows. On this, need more wows this on podcast Slate. page, I think. I mean, one thing I love, particularly about your piece, is that the various people who've read it, a lot of them have come up to me and said, he didn't even mention my favorite Clickhole project, you know, or sometimes they would mention it. And I'd say, actually, he did link to it in one of his, like, 2086 links that are in the piece. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the depth of what they do, the fact that... I think they once published a piece. It was like seven, <laughs> seven, seven things I learned from my years on a whaling ship or something. That was the, that was the moment I realized I, that, that was they my had defense. Someone was like, how could he not have talked about Moby Dick? I was like, it's in there. <laughs> it is. It's uh, the time I spent on a commercial whaling ship totally changed my perspective on the world. <laughs> um, and then you clicked through and found the entire complete unredacted text of Moby Dick, <laughs> which was kind of great. Dan, as long as we're talking about you feeling the feels and experiencing your own uh, kind of identity shift as a journalist as you as you research this piece, I wanted to ask you about um, this this kind of nihilistic moment at the end of your, well, not nihilistic on your part, but a moment that you speak of the nihilism of this publication toward the end of your piece. And you specifically quote Colin Crawford, this very funny writer who we hear cracking jokes in the writer's room, as saying that the, the thesis of Clickhole is that, if I, if I remember right, he says, the thesis is that the world is terrible garbage. Terrifying. Terrifying garbage. Um, and, and, it, and it is a very sort of dark note, although you do observe that, you know, his voice is maybe the darkest one on the site. But I wanted to, to just hear your reaction to that and, you know, hear about your, your own moral crisis <laughs> while reporting this piece. I mean, I mean, this, anyone who works in web journalism right now, I think, feels very uncertain all the time about how what the future holds and about the worth and value of the things that we do in the face of the constant economic pressures that we face and in the face of you know better funded competition and sites out there who we worry are getting stories before we are or just the notion that one year from now or two years from now or five years from now if Facebook turns off the spigot we all wither away and die and Tapping into this particular moment at Clickhole was both energizing and a little bit depressing. It was depressing because these people are viciously satirizing the thing that I do They, with no holds barred. They are people who are willing to say and do anything to make fun of and belittle 
the thing that I do to make a living. And I like to think that Slate is a better site than all the other sites that they're actually parodying. But of course, they are also parodying us as well. But it was also invigorating because in the midst of this insanity, in the midst of the media panic and anxiety of 2015, you know, way out there in Chicago, a room full of people are constantly making something that is actually amazing and a signature publication of our time and the very kind of thing that I went into journalism to try and make a great magazine. And that is invigorating and energizing and inspirational. And it it will make you feel all the feels. I think that's right, Dan. And one of my favorite lines in your piece actually is where you say, in the same way that Playboy captured the moment of 1965 and Ms. captured the moment of 1972 and Spy Magazine captured the zeitgeist of 1988, Clickhole has captured our moment today. And to watch a set of talented writers and thinkers and editors do that is one of the joys of journalism. And I, I loved that observation in your piece. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? We are sponsored today, Steve, by Birchbox Man. Women have been subscribing to Birchbox for years, and now there is a subscription just for men. Birchbox, of course, launched, I think, a few years ago, and I have so many friends who are addicted to it. You sign up as a subscription basis, and you get, like, a cool box in the mail every so often with awesome new, like, makeup supplies and toiletries and lotions and unguents and emollients and things to try. Uh, And everybody I know who gets it loves it. But they've now launched one for men. And Birchbox Men is a better way to discover products online. Each month, you will receive an assortment of grooming samples and stylish accessories, everything from skin-soothing shave gel to a stainless steel flask. Every box is paired with original content like style tips, tutorial videos, and tastemaker interviews. For just $20 a month, subscribers receive a monthly box of gear and grooming. Featured brands range from cult classics to industry legends like Baxter of California and Ursa Major, which is made with wild-crafted ingredients from the woods of Vermont. If you like what you get, you can stock up online in the Birchbox Man Shop with perks. Head over to Birchbox.com and use promo code CULTURE to get 100 Birchbox points with the purchase of your subscription. That's $10 to spend towards your new favorite products. Thanks, Julia. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. Yes. So I'm a big fan and I think have talked about on the show before the uh, Scandals of Classic Hollywood series on the Hairpin blog written by Anne Helen Peterson, who's a big listener to our show. We actually met her at our South by Southwest live show. I remember she was at the time a PhD student finishing up at University of Texas. Now she is a professor and writes for BuzzFeed and I don't know what all stuff she does. Mm -hmm. She's fabulous. And she She, writes mainly on celebrity gossip. She was hard to pick out of the crowd of six, though, at South by Southwest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. But her her loyalty made she counted it she counted as six. Anyway, she was she we had a brief conversation that day, but since then I've followed her her writing in various places on the web and always found her really fascinating. And I didn't realize that she had a book until I was sitting in Word bookstore in Greenpoint this weekend and uh and came across a collection of the scandals of classic Hollywood. I think maybe I knew she was coming out with a book, but I'm only faintly cognizant of my surroundings most of the time, so I didn't know it was out. And it's called Scandals of Classic Hollywood by Anne Helen Peterson. I'm about halfway through it. And it is a good, juicy read. Remember when we were talking on Slate Plus recently about you got your light book and your heavy book going at the same time? So this is a great light book. It's essentially a chapter each on all of these classic Hollywood scandals involving Mary Pickford and Rudolph Valentino and Fatty Arbuckle and people who we associate vaguely with sort of, you know, the the vice of the roaring 20s without quite knowing how their stories overlap. And uh, it's just the right mix of sort of scholarly, you know, film scholarship and also just pure out and out dirt dishing, but well, well footnoted dirt dishing. That sounds very cool. So Scandals of Classic Hollywood and Helen Peterson. Yeah. Read it on a beach. Superb. Julia, what do you have? I like faint cognizance is your motto, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) A slate culture gab fest, faintly cognizant of culture since uh, 2007. I shall emblazon it on my coat of arms. I, I love it. Huge vats of bullshit over which there's a layer of faint cognizance. It sounds like a weather condition. All right. My endorsement this week circulated on the web, you know, years ago and then again a couple weeks ago, but I made a note of it because it was just too delectable. It was a letter of note highlighted by our friends at Letters of Note, which is, of course, I think mentioned frequently on this show. The terrific site, and I think now book where Sean Usher collates and collects just terrific, notable letters from famous people of yesteryear. But this one is from Alec Guinness to Ann Kaufman. And it is sent from the set of Star Wars fairly early on in the production before Star Wars has arrived upon the scene. 
Can't say I'm enjoying the film. New rubbish dialogue reaches me every other day on wadges of pink paper, and none of it makes my character clear or even bearable. I just think, thankfully, of the lovely bread, which will help keep me going until next April, even if Yahoo collapses in a week. I must off to studio and work with a dwarf, very sweet, and he has to wash in a bidet. And your fellow countrymen Mark Hamill and Tennyson. That can't be right. Ford Ellison? No. Well, a rangy, languid young man who is probably intelligent and amusing. But, oh, good God, they make me feel 90 and treat me as if I was 106. Love, Alec. And then there's a P.S. Harrison Ford. Ever heard of him? (laughs) That is so charming. I don't even know what half of it means, but I love the notion of the befuddlement of Alec Guinness on the set of the original Star Wars, having no idea what kind of cultural phenomenon he's about to be a part of. I'll never see Obi-Wan in the same way again. (laughs) (laughs) Grumpy and hungry for bread. All right. Well, my uh, my endorsement this week is a a piece that uh, my dear friend Paul in Mill Valley put me onto this past weekend. He said it, it's the essence of what's great about Grantland, and it's a piece by Rembert Brown, who's just terrific, and it's called "Going Way Too Deep Down the Rabbit Hole with Nicki Minaj's Recent Bar Mitzvah Appearance," <laughs> and, effect, and effectively, what I wish I had Paul here to describe it because he described it so beautifully. Effectively, what Rembert Brown did is there. So this photo goes around. Twitter and then all over the internet of Nicki Minaj. Let me show you the photo. Nicki Minaj surrounded by, I don't know, eight or 10, 13 year old boys at the bar mitzvah at which she's been paid, you know, seven figures to appear or whatever it was. And Rembert Brown does this semiotic breakdown of what this photo means in the lives of all participants. (laughs) And it's so fucking brilliant. It's so... It's just that it's just one of those moments where like the god of culture criticism smiled down upon one man's fingertips and he just you can tell he just knocked it out, you know, 2,500 words in in an hour. (laughs) (laughs) I somehow missed this. This is amazing. There's just like a crowd shot of, I think, eight tweens (laughs) (laughs) who are almost as tall as Nikki herself, who appears to be wearing some kind of lace up gladiator boot. I'm excited to read this. <laughs> I mean, it's just so delicious. I, I again, like only Paul Herman can do this subject justice, but it, it, it's just internet writing at its greatest. All right, that's our show. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply, and our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and Dan Quise, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Uh,